Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I'm the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. If you would like to be a part of the show, you can contact me on any of the contact links. The listener hotline is 303-832-0217. On the show today, I'm going to be talking to someone who is near and dear to my heart. He doesn't know that yet. Um, his name is Andrew Farah, and Andrew works for General Motors. And he was one of the early engineers who worked on and created... The Chevy Volt. Yes, the car that I own and that I love. And I'm really excited to talk to Andrew. And I have a feeling he's probably not going to want to talk about the Volt for very long. Or, or he might just feel pressure to talk about what we're supposed to talk about, which is General Motors Super Cruise and Ultra Cruise features and the current state of autonomous cars and such. They're doing this press tour. And uh, they're doing this uh, uh, one day where I can uh, uh, you know, s- sign up for a certain time slot. They were generous enough to give me 30 minutes for a time slot. Uh, and we were going to be talking. I said, well, I-, I can't really talk for 30 minutes about uh, Ultra Cruise and Super Cruise. Uh, but I could talk about the overall autonomous car uh, situation, how we're doing with autonomous cars. Because, you know, a couple episodes back, we talked about um, with Dan O'Dowd about the problems with Tesla and their software. Uh, but I wanted to talk more in general terms about where we are with autonomous software and, and where what some of the other companies that he even he mentioned and what uh, uh, GM is doing about autonomous cars. And uh, I, I wanted to talk to uh, Andrew also about uh, the Chevy Volt now that I know that he was a part of it. And it, it, it we'll see, because usually they get funneled into talking about what they're supposed to be talking about. Uh, and, oh, and so we'll see how this goes. Uh, anyway, I'll be talking to Andrew about autonomy and uh, also some, uh, throwing in some questions about the Chevy Volt uh, coming up in just a minute. But first, what do you think are the seven most deadly interstate highways in the United States? Uh, Here's the list of the seven most dangerous interstates in the U.S. based on the number of deaths per 100 miles. Now, this is according to the U.S. Department of Transportation. I don't remember who put this together or who sent it to me. It was, I'm sure it was in some kind of an email. And I forgot to write it down uh, so I could attribute it to somebody. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> uh, so I don't know who sent it. Uh, I'll start at number seven, and we'll work our way up to number one. Why there is not ten? I don't know. This is not a David Letterman top 10 list. It's a top seven list. All right. So at number seven, I-40, 9.89 deaths for every 100 miles. Now, Interstate 40, if you don't know, runs nearly coast to coast, goes east to west across the southern half of the United States uh, from Barstow, California to Wilmington, North Carolina. And I-40 covers about 2,500 miles. Rolls through well-known cities like Flagstaff, Albuquerque, Oklahoma City, uh, Memphis. And in 2019, the highway registered 253 fatalities. Now, one main hazard was and continues to be the high traffic volume, particularly during summer as it is a big uh, uh, major road used for road trips. All right, number six, I-15. I-15 has 11.02 deaths for every 100 miles. And I-15 heads north-south along mostly the uh, western side of the United States. Uh, It's it's northern terminus where it ends as Sweetgrass, Montana, right there on the United States-Canadian border. And the southern terminus is down in San Diego, uh, just shy of the Mexican border. So it's about 1,400 miles. It passes through eastern Idaho, much of Utah, 
uh, the southern tip of Nevada. That's how you would get to Las Vegas, largely due to the excessive speeds that we see, especially in southern Nevada and in southern California. Reckless behavior across Los Angeles and Las Vegas, that whole stretch. That's why it's uh, one of the more deadly highways. The latest tally showed 158 uh, fatalities for I-15. Coming in at number five is I-35, 12.56 deaths for every 100 miles. Now the 1,500-mile-long Interstate 35, it goes through the central U.S., north to south, uh, basically Duluth, Minnesota, on the shore of Lake Superior, down to Laredo, Texas, on the Mexican-U.S. border. Uh, the 197 deaths across the year occurred near Texas's major population centers like Sandy, uh, San Antonio, Dallas, and Austin. So that's why I-35 is uh, on this list at number five. Uh, at number four, I-75. I'm very familiar with I-75 because that was the major uh, route going through Detroit. 13.27 deaths for every 100 miles. The country's second longest north-south interstate. Goes all the way from Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, which is at the very tip of the uh, hand of Michigan, the, the mitt of Michigan, if you will, all the way down to Hylia, Florida, just north of Miami. And it covers a total of 1,786 miles, nearly 1,800 miles. And it includes uh, Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee, Georgia, as well as a, a number of major cities like Detroit, as I mentioned, Cincinnati, Atlanta, Tampa. And, and the key areas to watch here are in Michigan during the harsh winters because there are so many uh, ice storms, snowstorms, And then down in Florida, especially the Tampa area, which is notoriously bad uh, for people racing on, uh, the, uh, on I-75. Um, and they have a lot of people uh, who unfortunately crash, and, and they turn into deadly crashes down in Florida. And these two regions really accounted for the large portion of the 237 deaths that happen on I-75. Uh, in third place, I-5 over on the West Coast, 13.47 deaths for every 100 miles. It connects the western United States with the Canadian and Mexican borders from Blaine, Washington to San Diego. And I-5 is significant, but... It's more dangerous because of the large population centers in California, Sacramento, Los Angeles, San Diego, and the intense traffic flow to and from Tijuana, Baja, California. And, and this, uh, the, the interstate is about 1,400 miles, and they have about 186 fatalities uh, for the year. Uh, number two, I-20. You know where I-20 is. It's on the southern part of the United States, 13.52 deaths for every 100 miles. It cuts east west across the southern states, uh, beginning near the tiny community of Kent, Texas, and then traversing to the city of Florence, South Carolina, relatively short, uh, about 1,500 miles. Uh, but they see a high-density fatality rate of 208 in total, and it's largely due to I-20 connecting many high-traffic metropolitan areas uh, like Dallas-Fort Worth, Birmingham, Atlanta, and Columbia, South Carolina. And number one, as the nation's most deadly interstate, I-95. Yay! <laughs> I-95. Everybody knows I-95. 14.88 deaths per every 100 miles, the longest north-south highway in the country. It's also, unfortunately, the most dangerous. It's uh, over 1,900 miles long, goes from uh, Maine to Miami, experiences 284 fatalities, and most of the incidents occur near the ends of the East Coast. Uh, we are up to the north because you have 
uh, Boston, you have New York City, you have so many of the big communities down through Florida, and uh, including Miami. You have challenging driving conditions in the north. You have the problematic patterns uh, with the uh, people in Florida and how they drive. It is a really a major interstate, and so I-95 is, congratulations to you, the number one most deadly high, uh, interstate highway in the country. So there you go. I, I still use interstates. I, I usually default to the interstates when going somewhere longer distance because you can go faster longer and usually save time. Uh, we in Denver have uh, I-25, Interstate 25, that runs north-south, goes uh, all the way up to Wyoming and down into New Mexico. I-70 traverses the entire country, basically, uh, and so also uh, very busy. Now, I wouldn't doubt that uh, I-25 and I-70 were probably number maybe 8, 9, 10, somewhere on that list. Well, a couple of episodes back, I spoke with Dan O'Dowd. Remember that from the Dawn Project? We were talking about his concern with Teslas and their soft self-driving technology and their softwares and, and all the problems with it and, the, and what he says are, are the deadly conditions that the self-driving Tesla software uh, offers. Well, today I wanted to talk in more general terms about where we're going with self-driving, how far these companies have come, other companies have come with the technology, and why so many people are still freaked out uh, by trying to by riding in a in a car or a or a shuttle that doesn't have a driver in it. Joining me now to talk about this is Andrew Farah, General Motors Executive Director of Advanced Driver Assistance Systems. In this role, Andrew is leading the development and execution of Advanced Driver Assistance System software for Super Cruise, Ultra Cruise, and the future higher levels of autonomy. But more importantly, especially to me, Andrew. You were one of the chief architects behind the groundbreaking Chevrolet Volt, a car that I own, I love, I routinely say is probably the best car I've ever owned. Uh, Andrew, thanks for being here on the World Famous Driving Your Crazy podcast. Jason, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, and I'm happy to hear that you love your Volt. I loved all the Volts I drove. I, I have to say, I was crushed when GM ceased production of it. I, I, I was always hoping that you guys were going to create an SUV-style Volt, and I would have bought two the day it came out. What, what was your fondest memories of the Volt? Actually, it's probably one of the very first times we took out one of the development cars, and uh, Bob Lutz, who was our one of our uh, lead uh, senior executives at the time, and he was coming out to go for a ride, and somebody forgot to turn the switch on. It's a long story. So we were sitting there trying to figure out what the car would move. But anyway, we found it eventually. Nice. Why wasn't it expanded into more models and it was just the one sedan? Well, you know, we, we thought about it, but we were looking to see uh, how battery technology was continuing to evolve. And then what we saw on the horizon was the idea of going fully electric. And we thought that, you know, we could do more of these, uh, you know, uh, if you think about them, the Volt was a great starter electric car for people. But we wanted to get on to the mainstream or more, you know, full electric all the time. And as you can see, even later this year, we're finally getting out there with a full uh, slate of electric vehicles. And, uh, of course, a lot of those will also have our advanced driver assistance systems in them, too. So, we, uh, to me, that's like a double whammy. I think it's great. Yeah, because uh, for me, I'm just past 120,000 miles on my 2014 Volt. Uh, I'm still on the original brakes, uh, which I think is still amazing. Uh, I'm still on the original battery, not not the 12 volt that's in the trunk, uh, you know, on the on the main battery system. I, I, is there is there a method to replace that one, or it would it be too cost prohibitive at this point to replace it, or should I just buy a new one? 
Well, that, you know, we haven't actually had to replace very many of them at all. Uh, they, uh, you know, they don't really wear out as fast as people thought they might. And I think that's good news for owners as well as General Motors. It's funny because I uh, was talking to somebody just the other day about their Tesla and how frustrated they get with losing some range in the Tesla. And uh, with any electric car, when it's really hot or it's really, we've seen this down in Phoenix this, you know, the last couple of months, uh, or it's really cold or, or you know, when you're charging it, you, you lose some of that charging speed and, and you lose range in different temperatures and driving conditions and that sort of thing. And it's funny because they said they saw somebody with a video of a, of a little Honda generator in the back of their Tesla. And I said, I got one. It's in the front of my car, <laughs> and I can keep going forever. It's great. Yeah, um, you know, the batteries are going to age a little bit. They're going to be affected by uh, uh, the weather in the sense of how far you can take the car. You know, just the simple fact that the cold air is heavier and thicker. Actually, in warm weather, uh, many people report getting a lot more uh, electric range out of their uh, electric vehicles. Oh, good. My guest is Andrew Ferris, GM Executive Director of Advanced Driver Assistance Systems. We're talking about self-driving technology and some of the stuff they're working on. Uh, quickly, before I get into that stuff, th there's so much emphasis on the battery electric vehicles and very little emphasis on the hydrogen electric vehicles. Why? Why not more development and expansion into hydrogen? Well, actually, that's a little out of my area, but we do have a program going on with hydrogen fuel cells and, and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, it seems to be better suited to larger vehicles, trucking, things like that, particularly point to point where the supply of hydrogen wouldn't be so much of an infrastructure issue. So I think we'll see uh, a lot of that coming out in the future. As I mentioned, your, your role with GM now is to look into self-driving technology. The, the software company Waymo, they're working on it. Uh, you guys are, are working on it. Um, I mean, all the major companies, we obviously hear about Tesla self-driving software a lot. I think they're the ones that most people hear of more than anybody else. What is the state of self-driving right now? How is the technology progressing? Well, you know, we, we think of it as uh, different levels of driver assistance systems, right? And in the retail market, you can get certain uh, systems where the vehicle will... Uh, pretty much do what it's supposed to do, but the driver still has to stay fully engaged. They're not fully autonomous. You'll also see out in the marketplace that you can get go to some ride hailing services like our cruise uh, ride hailing service out in San Francisco and some other cities where you can actually get into a fully autonomous car. There's no brake pedals, there's no steering wheel, and everything happens. There's really nothing for the passenger to do. We don't even call them drivers because they're not driving the car. But in the retail world, um, things are a little more limited, but our most advanced system called Super Cruise, right? we like to think of it as what we call hands-free eyes-on. That means you can actually take your hands off the wheel. We'll talk about why that is in a moment. But you do need to keep your eyes on the road and stay fully engaged because the driver is still responsible for the overall safety uh, and for making really the, any final decisions that need to be made about uh, situations that might occur. Is that an, uh, is that a, obviously it's a requirement for your self-driving a super cruise to, to keep looking at the road. Well, Tesla does basically, it says the same thing, but we've seen people sleeping. And, and when I was talking to Dan O'Dowd last week, he says that to Tesla owners 
shouldn't be using their uh, their auto drives feature because uh, it, it's not safe and that you don't have to look at the road all the time to uh, be uh, in self-driving mode. So how is your Super Cruise able to know when somebody is or isn't looking at the road and is engaged with driving if they need to step in? Right. Well, one of the matter of fact, the main reason that we can be truly hands free is because we have a driver attention monitoring system. It's watching the position of your head. It's watching the position of your pupils. It knows what you're looking at. And, you know, we actually have to tune it for every different car we put Super Cruise into because of the way, you know, uh, say in a uh, Cadillac Escalade, you know, where you might be looking would be different than in uh, the new uh, Blazer EV that'll be coming out later this year, just by the location of the windshield and the uh, pillars between the glass and things like that. So because we have that driver attention monitoring system, uh, we are comfortable with the idea of saying, you know, you can drive the vehicle with your hands, if you will, off the wheel. Um, And part of our uh, education of consumers, our customers and others because you're right, there's some confusion out there about what different systems can do. And there's some confusing terminology. It's inconsistent between different manufacturers. So part of our um, our uh, educational outreach, if you will, is to try to make sure that everybody fully understands what our General Motors systems can do so that there's no confusion about what they're capable of. And a good example is you have Super Cruise and you have Ultra Cruise and we have Tom Cruise driving the Super Cruise and Ultra Cruise. How, I mean, uh, how, all these marketing names, how am I supposed to know what the car can actually do? Well, uh, you know, the best thing is obviously to read the owner's manual, but we know that that's something that uh, sometimes people don't really want to get into that much. But that's why we want to get out there and explain how things really work and make sure that people understand that Super Cruise and eventually Ultra Cruise are still both systems that require the driver to stay in the loop. It's just a matter of what they can do for you. Today, Super Cruise is mostly a a highway vehicle that can drive you, you know, no problem on interstates. Also, we've expanded it to be on uh, other major roads, and we're going to continue to expand it over time. Ultra Cruise, as we're uh, developing that, is not available yet, but you can go from uh, the idea is we want to be able to go from driveway to driveway, hands-free and with uh, the vehicle doing, you know, most of the work. Interesting stuff. When, but the software, is it good enough to know that for just a moment, my, my uh, two or three-year-old who's sitting in the car seat behind me just dropped their favorite blanket on the ground and I can reach around to the back and help get the blanket or the bottle for the kid and, and, and still be in the self-driving mode or would it just shut off? And uh, I mean, uh, there, there are a thousand different things that can happen, especially for parents that are in a car trying to use that system, but also try to keep looking at the roadway. Well, you've got to keep looking at the roadway. As you know, you shouldn't be reaching back behind into the rear seat on regardless of what kind of system that you've got there. But, um, you know, in that case, uh, Super Cruise will know what you're doing and it will uh, alert you to the fact that you're not paying attention as you should. In theory, because we're talking about self-driving cars with uh, Andrew Farah, GM's Executive Director of Advanced Driver Assistance Systems. We're talking about self-driving technology. Uh, if we're talking about computers running cars, 
and, and if they're all connected to the transportation grid and they're they're all able to talk to each other, you would think in theory down the road you wouldn't even need to have uh, stoplights. You wouldn't need to look at the roadway where you're going. I mean, except if maybe somebody's crossing the, the as a pedestrian is crossing the street, right? Uh, but in theory, you could have cars maybe 10 feet apart from each other, driving 100 miles an hour on the interstate. Uh, are, are, it, 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 wouldn't we have, isn't it just a matter of, of time before we have to remove the human element before we can get to a higher level of autonomy? Well, I think first what you're talking about is what we refer to as V2X, X being anything else. The vehicle communicating what's going on with the vehicle, telling uh, it where it is. Uh, you know, you hear a lot of talk about the cloud, right? We yeah. can put all of that information up there and make it accessible to, you know, systems, of course, with the appropriate cybersecurity and those kinds of things. But I think your vision of the, of the way out future uh, there's no reason why that can't be done. It's just a matter of when and when the costs can be such that, you know, uh, people can afford them in a retail setting. Um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that these things remain affordable. And that's also uh, when you look at our advanced driver assistance systems like Super Cruise, they're very affordable uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, being able to have that feature. Um, you know, many of the other things, uh, you know, are small, smaller charges and things like that. And of course, the most basic safety systems are standard on all of our vehicles. But it's going to come to, w with all of these systems and being affordable, part of the problem, and I've, I've spoken to uh, car repair shops uh, with this, is that there are so many pieces of technology now in these vehicles, especially when it comes to the autonomous driving software. You have LiDAR and you have radar and you have all the different software and computer systems that are now in the car. Uh, all of that obviously contributes to the price of the vehicle, um, but then also makes it more difficult and more expensive to repair these vehicles too in the future. I think it's that way with a lot of the technologies today. I don't think autonomous driving or, uh, excuse me, advanced yeah. driver assistance systems are really any different than, say, your, uh, you know, your propulsion systems and things like that. Technology continues to move along, but at the same time, you'll notice that generally speaking, there's no maintenance on these things. They last a lot longer than they used to. They don't need adjusting. So there is probably some level of trade-off going on there. Um, but, you know, it, things don't stand still with technology. They're going to continue to be upgrades and, and, and things are going to continue to move forward. How important do you think are, are the exterior sensors compared to the, maybe the software to manage all of that information coming into it, I guess, or, or the, the computing power in the car needed to handle all of that data that's coming into the software and then need to process that data and, and whether it's going to be for uh, being an automated driving system or, or just operating the car. Yeah. Well, you've hit on the two key things for any of these uh, advanced uh, features, sensors and compute, right? Yeah. Those are the two things that, you know, you have the, the vehicle needs to do three big things, right? It needs to perceive the world around it. It needs to predict how that world is going to change in the next few seconds. And then it needs to plan on how to achieve its mission. In the case of Super Cruise, it's, you know, stay in the lane. Don't hit the car in front of you. Go around the car if you need to go around the car. For some of our other features, the, the mission is different. But, you know, you've got to have 
the the sensors need you know a view of the road sometimes they're cameras sometimes they're radars with super cruise we use both cameras and radars and we also use uh gps and then we also have an onboard map that allows us to understand uh the more uh, intricate features of the road so that we know how fast we can go into a curve uh you know all sorts of uh things you'd think you might not really need to know because you don't know them as a human, but you know, the computer can do a lot better job with all those things. They, and then, as you said, the compute, right? Every time you add another sensor, that's more data that needs to be processed. The, the computer systems have to be faster. And uh, really in some cases, uh, you know, some of the earlier systems that were developed just for testing purposes, it took as much energy to run the computer as it did to push the car down the road. We've got now, uh, you know, we we're way past that stage now and we're working to make it so that some of these really advanced systems can find their way into the retail market uh, over uh, the next few years. And, and, you know, you mentioned the difference between the computing and all the sensors. I mean, one of the major obstacles, I think, for self-driving uh, to, to is really the difference between a human and a computer is a computer has to learn to be human. In other words, I can be going 60 down the freeway. Here's a good example. There was uh, a, a piece of paper that blew right in front of the car and they just went, oh, well, I know I can instantly know that it's just a piece of paper. It's it's no big thing. But a computer has to be taught that. It has to be taught what a piece of rubber uh, from a truck tire looks like and, and, and where in each lane it might be sitting and, and what to do to maneuver around that in that scenario. Um, it, I know... In some instances, and I know it's it's not everybody wants to do it, but it's actually safer to hit an animal that might be in a road than it is to swerve because more people are hurt or killed swerving around an animal trying to save its life, and, and then they they hurt themselves or, or they become killed. So, but but a, but a computer doesn't necessarily know that and has to be taught that. Uh, what what will it take to teach these computers what humans almost innately know? Right. Well, first, and you pointed out something very important, which is it's going to take time for computers and systems to know everything and to be able to do all the things a human can do. That's why today, in particularly in the retail market, you don't see fully autonomous when a 100% drive, you can go sleep in the back seat yeah. type cars, okay? You, because they're just too expensive. Uh, at this point, right? But over time, you know, we'll get through that. Part of it is also, as you said, the training, right? The the teaching the vehicle to be as smart as a human. That also takes time. And these are some of the different technologies that, that we're working on. And we're using in some of their earlier, earliest forms, right? To just do simple perception tasks, more complex perception tasks, planning tasks. But it's it's still not as good as a human completely. And that's why it's very important for the driver to stay in the loop, for the driver to stay aware, to make sure that they're making any of those final decisions over maybe that piece of truck tire <laughs> right. that might be out there in the road. And maybe this is why AAA, because every year they do a survey about how people feel uh, how comfortable they are riding in an autonomous vehicle. And there are vehicles right now in Phoenix and in uh, Southern California, Northern California too, that are driving around autonomously right now in certain places. We even have one, an autonomous bus that's driving around Golden around the Colorado School of Mines. But they release a report every year that basically says 
that people are not still comfortable with the idea of getting into a car without somebody behind the wheel. What will it take for that feeling to change? Well, I think it'll be mostly about experience, right? Um, and education and understanding. Uh, partially, you know, what we're after here is to get people to understand a little more about just what does make safe operation of systems like Super Cruise so that they could, you know, be comfortable with going out there, operating it correctly and be able to get the advantages of it. Um, I think it's just going to be a matter of experience. It's like a lot of things that are new. People have to understand enough about them so that they're comfortable to go use them. And then once they do, they kind of say to themselves, how did I ever get along without this? <laughs> well, one of the first parts of autonomous driving had to be the uh, invention of the cruise control, where you yes. can just set the vehicle to let it drive at a certain speed, and it does pretty well, except if you're going to run into somebody, then you have to take over, and, and you still have to watch the road because you still have to drive. The next is these, uh, as you say, the super cruise uh, level of autonomy where I can then let go of the steering wheel. So in, in your world of, uh, driving with, with general motors, what is next from there? So what can I expect next? What can I let go of next between the gas pedal and the steering wheel? Well, good, good question. If you think about it with, with the super cruise, you've already pretty much let go of all the controls already. It even does the turn signals for you when you are changing, when it decides to change lanes for you and in our uh, most recent uh, uh, models, Um, you know, probably the way to think of the way I like to think about it, because I've been in the industry for a long time, I've seen, you know, cruise control go from regular cruise control to adaptive cruise control, where it's also monitoring the vehicle in front of you. I've seen us go from lane, uh, lane departure warning to lane keep assist, where it's actually uh, helping to make helping to keep you in the lane, right, you start to build all of those things together. And then eventually, you know, you get a system like Super Cruise, and then you uh, get a little, uh, uh, you improve the way you can perceive the world around you, and then you can get into things like Ultra Cruise into the future. And, you know, one of the good things about GM is we're actually approaching this from both ends, right? We've been building up from the one side with, with all of those different features that we just talked about over the last you know, 10 years or so, if you want to think about it. And then we've also got cruise automation who are right out there working on full autonomy, what's sometimes referred to as level four autonomy, which means it'll do everything uh, in the environment that you've designed it to do it. Right. And, and we're getting the best of bringing both of those things together. Um, and that's part of what we're doing to plan the future, which is how do we bring all of those things together and get the most out of it for the customer. But but the final level of autonomy is is true. It's level five self driving, where it can drive anywhere, anytime on oh, basically any street. Will will we ever really see true level five self driving and and robo taxis as Elon Musk and, and others have promised? Yeah. So I remember when uh, the uh, SAE report came out, they defined the levels of autonomy level five, and my first thought, and I still stick to this, is. Level five, there are a lot of humans that aren't level five. <laughs> so, you know, simply put, or they might think they are, right. but they aren't, believe me. So uh, the point being is um, 
for sure, there'll always be some limitations, I, I believe, right? Level five is anywhere, anytime, everywhere. Uh, so I guess that's really officially level four. For true autonomy to work, though, there has to be some kind of a symbiotic relationship between the car and the road, as we talked about, and other cars on the road. But but it must be more of a challenge, I would think, to, to have that system set up in a rural area compared to a more urban, densely packed city. Uh, actually, when you're in a densely packed city area, that's more difficult. There are more things to worry about, more things that could happen, right? And... Uh, that's why our, uh, our uh, you know, cruise automation in San Francisco, right? They pick the world's most difficult place to start their work and to do their discovery of what it was going to take to get to, you know, uh, level four autonomy in the city, right? If you look at that history of the 10 years that we were talking about, though, of the things that have been happening in retail, they've kind of gone from the easier uh, domains of operation to the more difficult, a little more difficult, a little more difficult, right? So again, it's a, it's, it's going to be a, a, an evolution, right? A, a spectrum of things, but it's, uh, you know, out in uh, open areas and things is easier than in uh, densely packed cities. There are so many companies now between software companies and you know, like Google and Waymo and, and there's Chinese companies and, and you folks are all working on different levels of autonomy uh, for your specific vehicles. Is is this a race to uh, where everybody, uh, like when, when first there were chargers for cell phones, everybody has their own separate cell phone charger and everybody has their own separate type of software for their phones. Is it going to be that? Are we going to be able to eventually come together as different car makers and, and as software creators to create one type of software that works for all vehicles? Well, I think there are always going to be some market differences, um, you know, and the technology is never going to stand still either, whether it be sensor technology. Uh, you know, you, yes, we've had automotive radars for maybe 20 years now, right? But the ones we have today are much, much better than those early radars. Similar with cameras, right? Similar with LIDARs, yeah. there's been uh, just a tremendous amount of, of uh, improvement. And when I say improvement, uh, I mean also the idea of their, their cost and reliability. Because in the end, when you take it to a retail market, you have to be ready to bring those things in with the quality and at a cost point that people expect. Because, you know, we've we've spent a lot of time making the quality of our cars good. And, and that's exactly the way we want our customers to to see it and, and experience it. And, and I know I'm uh, running close to the end of our time here. Uh, finally, will autonomous cars, they, they have difficulties with some aspects of driving on the roads. And I think one of the toughest things that they have to try to navigate are roundabouts. Will they ever be able to get through a roundabout? What did I say earlier about some people? <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, I actually see that the roundabout problem could be solved. Um, it's actually, uh, it's complicated, but it's not it's not insurmountable as I see it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm actually a huge fan of the roundabout. It's, it's anything that keeps traffic moving is better than having it stop and go and stop and go. Right. Yep. But, you know, I think, uh, again, the, the key to all of this and the, you know, the acceptance and things like that, right, is going to be uh, 
good education, making sure that customers and that the public understand what these systems are and aren't, right? Making sure that they know the difference between a system that can be hands-free to one that can't be, right? And making sure that they understand that if they need to keep their eyes on the road, then that's exactly what they should do. And as a part of our overall, you know, uh, promise of safe deployment, it's important to know that uh, at least from a General Motors perspective, for sure, we're never going to put anything out there that hasn't been fully validated and tested uh, to the same standards we do for uh, our safety systems. Although Super Cruise is not a safety system, we treat it just as if it was, just like a number of our other advanced driver assistance features, uh, because we want our customers to know that we've done everything we can to make it as, as safe as possible for them even if they still need to be in the loop. Where can people get some more info, information about Super Cruise, about eventually Ultra Cruise, and uh, decide if it's right for them? Well, uh, you know, you can always go to gm.com. There's a product section, and you can hear about those things. We also have a, a special website about our uh, safe deployment and our uh, hands-free eyes-on program, which will start out with a few things in it, and then we will continue to have it evolve over time as we uh, listen to what people's concerns are. We will try to address those uh, on that website. Andrew Farah, the GM Executive Director of Advanced Driver Assistance Systems. Thanks again for your time and especially thank you for your work and creation of the Chevrolet Volt because Delanya is the best car I've ever owned and, and I wish I wish it was still going because I'm gonna drink keep I'm gonna drive it as I told my wife till it till it till the wheels fall off. <laughs> well, don't let that happen to you, Jason. That would be unsafe. But uh, exactly. thank you for having me, and thank you for uh, loving the Volt. All right, there he goes. And you can get a link to the GM site in the description of this show. And like I said earlier, I was a bit concerned that Andrew didn't want to talk too much about the Volt and wanted to stick to the autonomous car stuff. Uh, there were uh, several PR people uh, that help with these uh, bookings uh, on the call. Maybe they uh, made him a bit nervous to stick to the topic. Um, that's usually what happens during these press, press interview tours. Uh, you, you get a basically a set time. Usually it's like 10 minutes, but I was uh, granted 30, thankfully, for this one. And, and then uh, you don't really have much time to do anything but the topic when you have like a short time, like 10 minutes. But, but I had enough time uh, to expand the conversation into, into other things, and I, that's why I wanted to talk about the Volt. Uh, but sometimes the guests will... We'll go along with it, and sometimes they'll they'll go with you, and other times they, they just really want to stick to the topic at hand because and, and get to their talking points because that's what they've been instructed to do. Uh, so anyway, uh, I was appreciative of the extra time that I got to spend uh, with with Andrew, and and then you know him him be playing along and and, and answering my Volt questions, and and he actually later helped me out with a heater issue. I, I have this. Uh, problem with uh, I got a, a it said heater needs service soon and I, I took it to a place and they they couldn't figure it out so now I'm gonna have to go to the GM because I was really concerned that uh, it's gonna cut because because the heater it, to replace it is like a thousand dollars I mean just to get to the thing because it's all the way on, in the back of the uh, of the generator area like right against the firewall of the vehicle um, and so it's like they have to take off a lot of the car to get to it so it's a lot of labor to to get to the if you have to replace it and then I think the replacement cost I think the cost of the thing is like eight or nine hundred dollars it's like a two thousand dollar job and then he mentioned hey there might be some kind of a fluid uh, change that you can do on it boom. 
I'm sure that doesn't cost two thousand dollars. <laughs> if it keeps it working uh, during a Colorado winter, I'm all happy for that because then I won't have to plug in a space heater in the car, which was my second option. Um, so I guess I'll look into that. Anyway, thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.